0: Now that has worked, and I can see that uh, we're very lucky that uh, General Ben Hodges has joined us just as well. Ben, can you hear us well?
1: Loud and clear.
0: Five by five. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining. Uh, What a pleasure, yet again, um, that you um, take a bit of your precious time. I know your calendar and your schedule is packed, uh, but then again, so are these times. Um. Would you mind if we start with the Black Sea in Crimea today? I would love that. Those are two of my favorite topics. I was just about to say, I, yesterday in a conversation which we had here on the space with um, um, Admiral Chris Perry, or the yeah, well, retired Chris Perry, we had a chat, a chinwag, so to say, a longer one actually about exactly that. And I highlighted that in the article Miss uh, Ms. Branza and um, you call it last year before she then joined uh, the administration, you had requested, amongst other things, or suggested, that that NATO should, in order to fortify its strategy and commit to the the Black Sea, create a three-star setup, and not just what seems to be the um, current design in Varna. Can you tell us a little bit about what our commitment to the Black Sea should be and what it is in contrast to that?
1: Well, um, you know, designing headquarters and and naming headquarters tends to be the first step uh, so often in coalitions and alliances, when in fact that should be the last step, um, because first you have to decide what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, what, what is the objective that uh, you want to accomplish, and then what are the tasks that have to be done to accomplish that objective, and then what are the resources, the forces that have to be allocated to do that, and then you assign a headquarters that's uh, uh, properly suited, uh, fit for purpose, so Brits would say, uh, to be able to, to carry that out. So. Before I address a specific thing about a headquarters, let me say, you know, what, what is it that we want in the greater Black Sea region? Uh, obviously, we have three NATO allies that live there, Turkey, Bulgaria and Romania. So the alliance has a responsibility to be able to uh, help with deterrence there to make sure that those allies are not attacked. That includes air, land and sea. Um, it all we also care about it because we have partners, Georgia, Ukraine and Moldova that are there. So we need to be able to help them uh, develop their own capabilities, uh, invest, invest economically there. And then, of course, we want to uh, these these things that we say or we care about in Ukraine and in the Pacific, uh, the rules based international order freedom of navigation, respect for international law, respect for human rights, respect for sovereignty. Uh, these are the kind of things that the Alliance has, a st- in, in which the Alliance has a strategic interest in the Black Sea. So laying out our objective, uh, the uh, to making sure that international uh, waters are treated correctly like international waters, and that our allies are safe from uh, attack that's what we've got to do. And then you figure out, OK, uh, that's going to require a comprehensive strategy that's not only military uh, presence and exercises and security cooperation, but it's also economic investment. And I look at the Black Sea as this amazing, potentially amazing east-west corridor between Europe and Eurasia, with the Caucasus, specifically Georgia and Azerbaijan being the portal between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And and if you think of it that way, then you start thinking, okay, what do we need to have in Georgia to make it this portal, a deep sea port, for example, more infrastructure, uh, et cetera. And then you get European companies and American companies flocking to Georgia to um, uh, build up logistics hubs, um, as well as uh, fuel, um, IT networks, all of these things that you would want to have in a portal between Europe and Eurasia. And then that puts pressure on Constanta. Constanta now has the, uh, the incentive to grow its capability and that puts pressure on the Danube. Uh, right now there's no pressure on the Danube to do the maintenance that's required and do all the facilities along the eight different countries through which the Donau Danube River flows. So then you think about, okay, what, what do we need for security for all of these things and of course that means a maritime presence as well as uh, black sea air policing uh, logistics bases from which land power can be projected drones can fly air forces can fly and then so now you start seeing the size of the force that's required and you think huh we need a headquarters that's a joint headquarters that wakes up in the morning smelling Black Sea air uh, that is able to um, have a picture, a, a common air picture, a common maritime picture, and a common land picture for that region. And you can't do that from Northwood in UK. You can't do that from Naples. Uh, you have to, I think, to be effective, you have to do it from inside the region. Obviously, it would be an allied headquarters with uh, uh the way we do all the the NATO headquarters, rotational, you know, nations take turns being the commander, blah, blah, blah. That sort of thing. And then of course, finally, uh, it will force us to look at Turkey in a completely different way. Uh Turkey is a frustrating ally, but they're an essential ally. And um, you know, that map is never going to change. And and we've got to think, understand Turkey's challenges in all the different directions that they face if we expect them to play a leading role uh, as part of this three-star
0: headquarters in the Black Sea region. Thank you for highlighting this. Of course, everything should flow from a strategy, and then it requires political will, the wonderful thing you uh, mentioned last time, which is often missing, if not uh, nearly all the time when we're actually coming up and discussing Um, Yesterday we also briefly highlighted that it is absolutely important and vital for Europe and NATO as such Mm -hmm. geopolitically to harness Turkey's uh, interest and tie in Turkey closer, back closer with us, which since the coup or whatever that was, um, Turkey has been viewed um, rather critically, even within NATO. My understanding is that um, the say, relinquishment of 5,000, what is it, 300 officers, sailors, NCOs, the likes, uh, military intelligence personnel within um, Turkey has changed the way NATO views Turkey and its interaction with it. What would you suggest we should do institutionally to tie them back to us? Well, first of all, I would not use verbs like
1: harness and tie, Uh, When you're talking about uh, an ally, uh, especially one that is um, that does not trust us. Um, I I lived in Izmir for two years with his commander of NATO Allied Land Command. And so I I dealt with our our Turkish allies on a daily basis. And as I said, uh, they can be very frustrating. Uh, They have an agenda. But guess what? So does Luxembourg. So does Iceland. So does Portugal. So does the U.S. So does Germany. Every member of the alliance has its own agenda and its own interests. And what you hope is that there are enough shared values and common interests that overlap uh, that helps you get through those times when you have competing agendas. Uh, Turkey has been a member of NATO since 1952. There's been a headquarters in Izmir longer than anywhere else in all of NATO except for Naples. So uh, the Turks, they fill every position can't say that about the U.S. or any other ally. They fill every position for which they sign up. And uh, I think that um, if we think strategically, uh, we try and understand the concerns uh, that Turkey has and why they don't trust us. And, and let me caveat all of this by saying uh, before somebody thinks I'm a Turkey first or uh, 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 advertising for uh, Turkey, that's not the case, but I can read a map and I, I know a little bit about history and and I think about what our interests are in the region um, and, and why we need to, to fix this relationship, why it's so important to all of us. I, some of you that were on this uh, call last night may have heard me tell this story already, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, I had breakfast with the J-5 of the Turkish general staff a few years ago. I said, sir, how's it going? He looked at me, he said, Ben, I wake up in the morning, I've got Russia to the north, Iran, Iraq, Syria to the south, the Caucasus to the east, and the Balkans to the west. It's a hell of a neighborhood. And I kind of laughed, and then I realized, you know what, on my map, Turkey and the Black Sea are in the bottom right-hand corner of the map, uh, as it is in every headquarters in Europe. But if you're in Ankara, The Black Sea is the middle of his map, and he's got to deal with all these other things. And I think the Turks have always been frustrated that we didn't care that much about those other concerns. And in fact, if you think about it, how the United States, uh, how we organize ourselves uh, with all of our combatant commands, having regional responsibility, U.S. European command, obviously, responsible for Europe, and Turkey is included in that. Uh, Central Command, the Middle East, guess where the border is between UCOM and CENTCOM? It's it's the border between Turkey and Syria. I mean, that's how we've organized ourselves. Uh, I can't imagine a worse place to have uh, a boundary between com- two combatant commands uh, than to be on the border between Turkey and Syria. Now, I don't have a great suggestion for where it should go, but I'm only using this to highlight the fact that you know, We, the United States, made a decision a few years ago to provide weapons to the YPG, which is a subset of the PKK, a terrorist organization that is an enemy of Turkey, and it's also identified by the United States as a terrorist organization, and uh, yet we thought it was so important to give weapons to the YPG because they were so effective against ISIS. ISIS is an evil organization and they should all burn in hell, but they are not an existential threat to the United States. Russia is. And so we made a policy decision driven by the fact that CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, is, uh, I would say at that time, was prima inter pares, first among equals between the commands. And so whatever they wanted, they got. And uh, and I think we're paying the price uh, for this. So there is a... Um, the the Turks don't really trust us. And then um, the attempted coup that happened several years ago, the fact that people may not like President Erdogan, uh, and he certainly does not have a sterling record for how they treat journalists uh, in Turkey, but he was elected president in an election of a NATO ally. And there were not a lot of calls, uh, people reaching out to him saying, um, hey, uh how can we help? What do you need? You know, glad you survived. There was none of that. And the Turks saw that. So I think uh there was a lot of distrust that's gotta be uh addressed. And then finally, and then I'll shut up, um, you know, there's we're always on the edge of a serious problem between two allies, Greece and Turkey. Uh, they have longstanding disputes over boundaries and borders and islands. Uh, Greece has a significant military; most of it is to be prepared to fight against another ally, Turkey. Most of Turkey's navy is not in the Black Sea. In fact, they have nothing that's permanently in the Black Sea. Everything that they have is in the uh, uh, Le- Sea of Marmara, uh, in the Sea of Marmara, and the Eastern Mediterranean. And so, you know, th- this is. If it wasn't for NATO, these two countries would have been going at each other with military uh, time and time again. So I think we just need to be uh, more strategic in how we think about Turkey.
0: Thank you for that, much appreciated, especially given the fact that we've been discussing exactly this topic here for weeks and weeks, and I think people have now come around to it, that apart from um, constantly um, brandishing Turkey, an ally of convenience and uh, scolding scolding Erdogan's political ambitions and the likes, but the map does not change ever. And that originally, Turkey was one of the main rivals of Russian expansionism in the region, so one should possibly find a way to um, utilize that thrust. Now, Yanis Bugayevsky a few years ago uh, said that the strategy by Russia would be towards the little states um, Destabilizing Ukraine, well, they did, and they attacked it. Paralyzing Moldova, they did, albeit that Moldova now has a new chance and support. Neutralizing Bulgaria, that to an extent worked, but now has failed. Isolating Romania, that seems to have failed, I would say. Subduing Georgia, that unfortunately is a thing currently with this government. And despite the fact that Georgia has been such a tremendously good ally, committing combat troops and everything and pacifying Turkey. Has Moscow pacified Turkey and Erdogan? Or is Turkey now stronger in its negotiation position when President Putin comes to Turkey? I think that uh,
1: Turkey is uh, is in a much better place vis-a-vis Russia than maybe it was a couple of years ago. Um, Now, Turkey has uh, centuries of history um, when they were the Ottoman Empire, dealing with the Russian Empire, uh, and they were on the losing end uh, most of the times when they came into direct conflict. So, um, you know, this is not something to be dismissed uh, that Turkey understands the advantages that Russia has. But Turkey also has the uh, significant advantage of, thanks to Montreux, they control the uh, exit and entrance out of the uh, Black Sea for all. Uh, other nations. So um, that's important leverage. I think uh, Turkey, though, has always wanted to, I'm speaking very broadly here, but I think the general Turkish approach has been to avoid uh, literally rocking the boat, creating a situation um, where uh, they could get into a conflict with Russia or something else. But You may recall a few years ago when a Russian airplane uh, violated Turkish airspace repeatedly, uh, the Turks shot it down. Uh, And the Russians were not able to do anything or chose not to do anything militarily. Now, they did inflict some pain on Turkey with uh, uh, some sanctions and embargoes. uh, And Turkey does get a lot of Russian tourists, construction business, and uh, other. Um, economic relationships. And, and so they, they have to be cognizant of that as well. Um, but when I see Turkey is in a position, I mean, they're helping Ukraine build drones. They're they're building a factory in Ukraine to build drones. Uh, they have uh, helped bring about a grain deal. I don't know I'm not, I'm not convinced on this grain deal. Well, first of all, we, there should not be a requirement for a grain deal. Why, why does Russia get to dictate uh, what Ukraine does with its grain? And obviously it's because of it. the Black Sea Fleet operates there illegally in the region, um, stopping commercial traffic. But Turkey could um, and has talked about escorting grain vessels to protect them. Uh, to me, this is entirely the kind of thing that Turkey should be able to do. They have a good, large, modern Navy uh, that would probably uh, be able to handle the Black Sea Fleet if they ever got into it. Obviously, nobody wants that, but I'm just saying they have more muscle than they have shown, and, and it feels a little bit like they are starting to uh,
0: flex that a little bit. We discussed it yesterday in the evening, given the fact that uh, Admiral Power, uh is very keen on the matter, that the humanitarian corridors which he and a few others believe are possible, now to be created alongside the literal uh, side, the western side of the uh, Black Sea, could become uh, significant um, assistance for Ukraine in transferring out its grain. Currently, 60% of the Ukraine's grain goes out by rail, and then either through uh, Galatz and Konstantin, uh, of course, uh, but it's not enough. And at the same time, there's many, many ships stuck currently still in Chodomovsk, in Odessa, Nikolaev, and the likes, which need to actually exit. Uh, what should we do with these 148 kilometers from what is Solina in um, Romania towards Odessa? Ukraine well, I think to guard it, right?
1: I think we should enforce international law. I mean, why Why is Russia able to block uh commercial traffic and in international water. It's only because we let them, that we, we, we do zero. And so if we do nothing, they're gonna to continue to do this. And I think this is where the United States uh, should work with our Turkish allies uh, and the Romanians and Bulgarians and and think about how can we uh, open up this corridor all the way into Odessa, clear it of mines, and, and make it clear through escorts, and uh, you know, the U.S. has drones, the MQ-9, that fly out of Romania, keep those up in the air, and tell and, and make it clear to the Russians that they they are not authorized to, to stop any commercial traffic. They have no legal standing to do that. I mean, we look. You may recall, uh, or you will have studied it when you were a kid. You know, when the Soviets blocked blockaded Berlin. What did we do? We sent a U.S. Army battalion task force on short notice. They did an exercise. They drove all the way from West Germany into Berlin using the already agreed upon corridor uh, between the four powers. So this is this is what I think we should be doing. We should be organizing a freedom of navigation exercise and goes right through there and tells the Russians, do not even think about fucking with. Uh. You know, this Turkish navy ship or Romanian navy ship, um, this is freedom of navigation. We we do it all the time in the Pacific, where the threat with China is much worse. Why are we so reluctant to do this in the
0: Black Sea? Well, that would require an invite by Turkey. I mean, whilst the US is not a signatory, it is uh, sort of say having indirectly ratified Montreux, so technically you wouldn't want to snub turkey by just demanding passage well that's i'm not saying that at all actually
1: i I didn't say that uh it
0: has to be organized in collaboration i understand that That
1: yeah i mean turkey 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 is the key here and the united states would not and could not you know, force its way through the Straits. I mean, uh, that's sovereign uh, control of Turkey. We have no desire to do that. What I'm saying is, you know, the United States should be showing some real leadership here and telling Turks that we will provide air cover, we will do all these other things, and we're going to do a demonstration, a freedom of navigation demonstration here in international water. And whether the U.S. Navy actually has a ship in there or uh, it's... You know, littoral states like Turkey and Romania and Bulgaria in a multinational uh, effort with uh, U.S. uh, uh, air supporting it, protecting it. I mean, I'm not going to design the the course of action here, but in terms of a concept, you know, we, we have done this kind of thing many times
0: before. Why are we so reluctant to do it now? The United States led the effort in the Strait of Hormuz. I mean, obviously, that's quite some time ago, but you
2: still did. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, then, a uh, slight change uh, within the Black Sea still, and maybe let's go to what Odessa has suffered from recently. Despite significant upgrades in air defense, uh, Odessa, as one of the main city's main targets and as a high-value target, has suffered greatly from constant regular intense attacks caliber as well as long-range missiles fired over the caspian sea Um, it seems that uh, ukraine has demanded yet another set of uh, um, patriot um, systems to be delivered but uh, no one is heeding that call Um, what should we do in order to assist ukraine in that regard other than obviously supporting all the other elements but uh, can we can we help them better Of course, I I don't
1: like the way you characterize it, that nobody's heeding their call. That's uh, In this case, when it comes to air defense, uh, I don't think that's true. We we actually do not have uh, enough. There's only one U.S. Patriot Battalion in all of Europe. I mean, that's how poorly equipped we are uh, to defend uh, infrastructure and populations. And certainly, I don't speak for everybody else, but I certainly underestimated the requirement for air and missile defense in Europe. I, you know, the, the fact that the Russians are using multimillion dollar precision weapons to hit apartment buildings and, and blood, fusion, uh, blood centers, hospitals, shopping centers, you know, all of that, you know, has uh, made it clear to all of us that our requirement for air and missile defense is much more than just protecting airports and seaports uh and that sort of thing uh it also is about protecting 500 million european citizens so uh we've got a we have an enormous task in front of us to uh develop credible capable integrated air and missile defense that that includes short range medium range and high altitude uh systems, uh, sensors, uh, the command and control networks, uh, aircraft, uh, and you have to practice it. We have, we have not practiced this in a joint multinational theater-wide exercise, at least in the last 10 years. Uh, this would be the responsibility of US European Command and NATO's Air Command. Uh, that there have been bits and pieces that have been done, but never one where we'd have to put it all together where you were dealing with incoming uh, drone swarms going after your sensors, uh, electronic warfare and, and uh, cyber attacks against your headquarters, and then uh, efforts to destroy, you know, our, uh, our firing batteries and, and uh, other types of shooters. It's very difficult. And you can imagine the challenge for anybody having to make decisions about shooting and not shooting when the sky is also going to have um, uh, civilian aircraft, uh, you're trying to pick through all this. You have to exercise it. We haven't done it. So uh, I'm hoping that we are watching very closely what's happening in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians have had success, uh, understanding Russia's uh, use of cruise missiles and rockets and other weapon systems um, so that we can improve our own defenses. And clearly we don't have enough. So we have got to figure out how do you increase production of, whether it's Patriot, NASAMs, THAAD, all of these things. And of course, they are all extremely
0: expensive. Absolutely, and uh, the reason why I um, say, made that statement is of course that Germany delivered a battery. Now that recently two additional launches, the United States delivered one. Um, Other nations provided NASAMs, uh, French and uh, Italians have now committed uh, SAMTs for layered air defence, which is absolutely helpful, of course. But um, Germany still has today, if I'm not quite mistaken, 11 units. They had once 36 when um, that was a real Bundeswehr in the 1980s. But 11 units, do we need 11 units in Germany at the moment? Uh, Could we not whilst we're producing more, actually, Seed maybe another one or two.
1: Well, I I suspect you know that um, somebody would have to make a risk assessment. I mean, those are, the Patriots that Germany has are not just parked in some motor pool uh, in Germany. Uh, sometimes they get deployed to do to do a lot of different missions, to include uh, the summit in Vilnius. Uh, we have Patriots that are down in Jeżów in Poland, protecting that gigantic logistics hub. Uh, we the collective we have provided backup. For nations that gave up their old Soviet-era systems to Ukraine, we have backfilled them with Patriot, like in Slovakia. So, um, you know, of course, everybody should be reaching deeper and and doing what Estonia did, where Estonia gave up all of its own howitzers to, to Ukraine, leaving themselves with none. They, of course, we should be doing that. So, um, I, but I can't. You know, I can't tell you whether they have eleven and three of them are doing this or that the bottom line is there's not enough um, capability that's out there for Europe um, for uh, for NATO let alone what's uh, what Ukraine needs now look i'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make an editorial comment here and not it's everybody's easy. not everybody's gonna like it but um, as we talk about this and I think nobody Uh, There's very, very few people, except maybe on this call, that are as committed to seeing Ukraine win as I am and are as inspired by Ukraine as I am. I think most of you listening are in that same category. But I would also say to our Ukrainian friends, what were you doing after 2014? I mean, between 2014 and uh, last year, February of 22, what was Ukraine doing? to get ready. I mean they had already been invaded. And so, you know, it's it's really popular right now and easy to blame the west for not doing enough. What was Ukraine doing during those 8 years? They did not increase ammunition production. They did not increase production of of uh, tanks and uh, air defense systems. In fact, they were exporting tanks. I visited that tank factory in Kharkiv in 2017. You know, being a history nerd, I wanted to go to Kharkiv, and I wanted to see this famous birthplace of the T-34, and I saw um, these uh, brand-new tanks lined up, and I got very excited, and I said, hey, are those going to the ATO, to the front? And the manager said, no, these are going to Thailand. I said, Thailand, you guys are humping our leg for a javelin, and you're exporting top-quality tanks? And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, you know, this is uh, the business model. We have to make money here. And so uh, Ukraine, which was the defense industry heart of the Soviet Union before the end of the Cold War, had capability that was not properly used. So uh, yes, we should all be doing more. I think I'm, um, I've got uh, a, a huge loud mouth uh, about this like many others who are listening here, but I, I just think it's not helpful. I, I don't think it's helpful to badger and blame Western countries for for not sending more, when in fact Ukraine wasted eight years of preparation uh, and all the things they're having to do in the last year and a half uh, should have been done over the last eight years. So this we need a little bit of historical context when we start slinging uh, mud at other countries for not doing enough.
0: Over. And uh, to hit on the same spot and during that period of time, people such as Vyacheslav Bozlaev, the then uh, general director and part shareholder of Motor Siege, one of the leading uh, manufacturers uh, were cozying up with the Chinese and still cooperating very closely with the Russians. So it is definitely also awesome an internal matter.
1: Yeah, this is this war in Ukraine is what failed deterrence looks like. I mean, you know, the, the Russians, they saw that we didn't do anything after they invaded Georgia. They saw that we really didn't do anything after they uh, jumped over President Obama's red line in Syria. Um, and they could see that we were a mess. Uh, they could see that Ukraine was not doing enough to arm itself. And so uh, they could see that Germany was still building Nord Stream 2. Um they could see that the U.S. was focused elsewhere, and we had our own terrible uh, internal problems, domestic problems with the previous administration. So, I mean, all of these things contribute to Russia's terrible decision to not only invade Ukraine in 2014, but then to launch their uh, major uh, invasion uh, last year. This because they were pretty sure that we were not going to do anything. They were confident that we would not respond um, after our disaster in Afghanistan. And uh, we just didn't look like we had our shit together. And uh, and then they could look internally at Ukraine and say, we could roll over them in just a few days. And uh, so we're in a war now because of failed deterrence.
0: Who advocated for deterrence? I, I don't understand what you're saying. You did. If you mem- uh, if you look if you look at the many articles you wrote um, and co-wrote and uh, statements you made publicly, um, for example, when at CIPAM you did advocate for deterrence and taking a different posture.
1: Okay, well, thank you, but
0: obviously, no, I'm, no, not I'm not a idea. I'm not a very it's compelling to writer to or it. speaker. <laughs> no, no, I'm not trying to flatter. I'm just trying to highlight that that is institutional knowledge. Amongst many people, you discussed it and we had here with us also your colleague and uh, friend, uh, General Philip Breedlove, who has been hitting the same points. And he was there when Crimea happened and um, he suffered from, um, shall we say, the political environment just as much.
1: Yes, he was a very he was a very good, strong advocate for increased readiness and deterrence. (laughs) Excuse me, but. uh, he was uh, frequently criticized uh, in Washington and in other capitals for being too too hawkish, and because uh, it does get uncomfortable for people that don't want to believe or don't want to have to deal with the you know the possibility of a conflict.
0: All right. Before we go to the hands, and I can uh, want to say a good evening also to one of uh, the people, a young officer, actually, not he's 42, um, a young officer of the signals uh, business in the Ukrainian Armed Forces, who's currently at the front lines, Andre, who's joined us. Um, Before we go to people there, very briefly, as a layup, and everybody can chime in there after, people have been discussing in recent days about Crimea. The day before yesterday, it leaked that in a discussion, in a side comment, um, a secretary, an assistant to um, Mr. Stoltenberg in Norway to journalists off the cuff said that Ukraine may have to negotiate at some point in time and may have to um, sacrifice land for NATO accession. That statement was actually made and has been verified by the journalists who were there. I have a view on this. I'm sure you do as well but he specifically highlighted Crimea. You and many of us have advocated that Crimea is the key to this. What do you say when people now come up and come out of the woodwork with that? Well, I, I quickly asked them which part
1: of their country they're willing to give up for the sake of peace. I mean, for Germany to give up uh, Schleswig-Holstein or for the United States to give up Texas, or uh, for France or Italy to give up, you know, Lake Como. I mean, for the sake of peace, come on, let them have it. So, of course, people are like, oh, come on, that's not realistic. But why is it somehow okay that we tell the Ukrainians, go ahead and let, let them have Crimea, you know, for the sake of peace? Um, first of all, anybody, and, and I think this was uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg's chief of staff, um, Sue so made that comment two days ago. It was a terrible comment, and I can only imagine that, um, you know, he's he has been receiving some serious heat uh, there uh, for, for saying something like that. Um, but set that aside, you know, take five minutes with a map and a history book. Uh, you look at that map. How can you, anybody, think that Ukraine would ever be safe or secure or would have um, – any sort of uh, chance to rebuild its economy as long as Russia occupies Crimea. Um, The Black Sea Fleet, the Russian Air Force, all of that stuff that's there will forever block uh, any shipping coming in and out of Azov Sea. So even after Mariupol and Berdansk are liberated, those ports will never be back in business. And then it's only 300 kilometers from Odessa to uh, Sevastopol. So the Black Sea Fleet and obviously even less to Kherson and Mykolaiv. So the Black Sea fleet, as long as it sits there in Sevastopol, can continue to disrupt, uh, interdict, or block any traffic coming in and out of those ports. And so investors are not going to invest a lot of money into Ukraine's recovery as long as Russia sits there. And then um, I I think the the book uh, about uh, Russia living up to its uh, any agreements is a pretty small, uh, thin book. Um, and so the idea that somehow they would be satisfied, okay, we've got Crimea. We're good. We don't need anything else. Um, is incredibly naive and and Ukrainians know this. And I, I don't think that they're going to accept, they're going to be willing to stop short of liberating Crimea. They need it economically. They need it for their protection. And frankly, for all of us, um, If we're serious about what we call this so-called international rules-based order, that means respect for sovereignty, freedom of navigation, respect for international law. If we're serious about it, then we should also not be pressing Ukraine to give up Crimea or any of its territory. And and certainly the Chinese are watching this.
0: Is that dithering already sufficiently bad signaling towards the Chinese, or can that still be salvaged by action now?
1: Well, of course, uh, you know, all is not lost here. Uh, the, the Chinese are doing their own calculations about how serious are we and are we willing to actually do things like in, uh, enforce freedom of navigation and respect for sovereignty and uh, international law. Uh, and, and also they're seeing how we are so easily alarmed or have been in the past about with just the mention of the possibility of a use of a tactical nuclear weapon. Everybody that has a nuke or wants a nuke sees that the United States stops short of doing what it needs to do because of fear of escalation. That's a terrible signal to send to North Korea or
0: Iran. Very much so. Thank you. Uh, If you don't mind, I would like to open the floor to a few hands. Uh, Anton, please.
3: Anton, whatever. Good evening, sir. Good evening, sir, or good afternoon. Uh, so glad to have you, uh, that, that you have a little bit of time to spend with us. So interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, you've raised a very important question and you made uh, some tears of Ukrainians a little bit burning, I, I can imagine. I will try to. I, I will try to follow up in the best manner I can I apologize I'm not a native language uh, not Engl- not native English speaker related what Ukraine has been doing for eight years, same as Ukraine been doing for 30 years with all respects or uh, doing its civilization choice. and when Ukraine did its civilization choice, Ukraine hacked got the the full-scale war, and during that 30 years, same as for the previous eight years, Ukraine being not only doing the civilization choice, but also expecting the international law to work in uh, respect of those agreements that Russia have broken, uh, all of them, and second, uh, some agreements that Ukraine being been signing, giving up, uh, giving away all the oh. missiles that are now even falling, including oh. uh, on peaceful Ukrainian skies, that what Ukraine being been doing. But I have the other question, I apologize. Uh, the question is related to the fact that uh, in Ukraine, uh, these days, the, the, the war is, how to call it, con- scale of the war is controlled escalation of the war is controlled in order to avoid the nuclear nuclear war and at a certain moment we see that the threat in Pacific from China is also growing and some kind of shifting the focus is happening uh, when the focus is shifted uh, in your opinion based on your experience and knowledge, uh, what would be the power of the United States power uh, projection in Europe considering that uh, Sweden have joined is joining NATO to having fantastic military capabilities on the other hand some countries like Hungary and all of the disagreements on the European continent between different units what's your take on that thank you so much okay
1: anton first um, i love your phrase uh ukraine made a civilization choice and and that's uh, I think that's a great way to to put that. and certainly uh, many Ukrainians were risking a lot as part of that choice uh, and and would have paid a paid a price. you know what I was talking about obviously in those eight years was the military. what was it doing in terms of building up its its defenses and ammunition stockpiles all the things that it needs right now but um, thank you for for sharing that now, um, right now, the, the U.S. has probably close to about 100,000, maybe 90,000 troops in Europe. That's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, a mix of permanently stationed and rotational. I don't, I don't know the exact number. It obviously fluctuates, but I think that's about right overall numbers. So 100,000. Of course, the stadium at the University of Michigan holds about a hundred thousand people. So when you start trying to, uh, or Wembley stadium holds about a hundred thousand people. So, uh, if you're trying to gauge, you know, how big, how many people is that? That's, that's a stadium, a major football stadium. Um, I've already mentioned that we have one Patriot battalion. Uh, the armor brigades that we have are rotational. None of them live in Europe. They are all rotational. They come from the States. um, it's not a lot that's there. Uh, the Air Force uh, has increased some of its capability in Europe, uh, but it's it has missions not only in Europe, but also supporting operations uh, of AFRICOM and in the Middle East. So, uh, and then our Great Navy, I think there are only about five or six surface ships in all of U.S. Navy, Europe, Africa. Uh, and most of them are required for Air and missile defense. They they carry the Aegis uh, missile defense system. So, um, what I'm trying to say is, what we actually have in Europe already is a light footprint, and so um, it's quality, but it's it's still not a lot. And so, if the there was a requirement to do more in the Indo Pacific region. Um, there's not much that we have in Europe today that would be shifted. So I think we'll probably with the exception of some intelligence assets, um, access to, uh, um, special forces, those kinds of things. But I would, I don't imagine there would be a significant departure of of what the U S has in Europe already. Uh, because frankly, it's still not that much. Um, So that's part of the reason that the United States has pushed so hard for our European allies to take on more and more of the burden, uh, not to free up uh, capabilities to go to the Indo-Pacific region, but because we don't have enough capabilities in Europe as is. I've talked ad nauseum about air and missile defense. Obviously, Finland joining will bring 64 F-35s eventually. Sweden will significantly increase the ability of the Alliance to totally control the Baltic Sea, um, but we've got to increase capability in the Black Sea region as well.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Let's go to our friend Nuno.
2: Nuno. Excellent, thank you. General, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, First of all, two things. I, uh, Wholeheartedly agree with you, both in this being a war where deterrence failed. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Me being former special forces, I think that, well, I'm going to say this uh, a number of SVR and FSB assets killed off when they misbehaved along the years could have done us um, a lot of good. But this is clearly a fail and, uh, failure of deterrence. You are absolutely correct in that it's a failure of deterrence by the collective West. Uh, in and we Europeans, me being Portuguese, uh, we clearly uh, failed in conveying to Russia that we would support Ukraine no matter what militarily. That's um, a problem that we are uh, trying to offset in the middle of a war, and that's terrible, terrible uh, conditions to offset a problem like this, but here we are. And the other thing uh, I've read, uh, I follow you quite uh, in what you write, and I think it's you've been one of the clearest minds in all of this, uh, frankly, and I believe that Crimea is also uh, the critical territory or the critical objective of any operation that Ukraine launches. So I would like very much to hear what you have to say about this possibility that uh, Ukraine, and I'm going to shift this a bit to the battlefield, um, how do you uh, see the front, let's say, the efforts uh, ongoing in Kherson? Because I won't call it a raid and I won't call it a breach We're still ongoing process, but it's clearly more than a raid. Uh, we have now two operational uh, strong points, let's call it this, um, in uh, Kherson along the river. And uh, eventually we have seen that uh, Russia is moving units, shifting units horizontally or along the front and not bringing up reinforcements, which could indicate that their reserves are exhausted. We've seen for instance, reports that Vostok battalion that was defending Ruzsain uh, fall, ba- fall back uh, to second and third defensive lines, but they weren't uh, rotated and they weren't uh, uh, reinforced, which means there's probably uh, no big Russian uh, reserves to commit. And we've seen in Kherson that it's a light infantry fight and an artillery fight. And we are not seeing mechanized elements of the Russian armed forces uh, moving in to uh, 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 tackle uh, the Ukrainian effort across the river. So these are a few indicators, or a few indications and signs that perhaps uh, Russia has exhausted reserves uh, in this area of the theater, and that we are probably in a moment that uh, any further major operation by Ukraine in other places of the theater, especially along the South Corridor, will have uh, decisive effect. What's what's on your mind, sir, about this? Felix,
1: thank you. Uh, that, that's a very good analysis. Um, I think, first of all, I, I imagine that the Russians are, are trying to marshal some sort of uh, armored reserve that they would move um, once they figure out where Ukraine's actual main effort is going to be or if they see a breakthrough about to happen somewhere. I don't know what they have. I, I can't imagine that they've got a lot or that it's well-trained. And certainly I would hope that U.S. and British intelligence and others are helping Ukraine track you know, any concentrations like that. But I think you're probably right that they don't have a lot left Back there, but there. When we talk about the counteroffensive, I think there's probably three points uh, that I would want to make. First of all, of course, everybody wants to see it go faster, or we all do. But that's that um, doesn't matter. What what matters is uh, the Ukrainian general staff. Uh, I have been so impressed with them, their professionalism, uh, and especially their discipline on operational security (OPSEC). We don't know exactly what's going on. I mean, there's thousands of reports on Twitter and other places. There's maps everywhere. And so many good, smart people are tracking individual battalions and brigades and trying to do uh, you know, battle tracking on, on your own map. Uh, but the fact is we don't, we don't know. And we shouldn't know. We're not entitled to know exactly the status of who's where, what's going on and what the plans are. I suspect uh, that, um, Things are going to uh, change in a few weeks. I'm, I'm reluctant to put a time on it because I've been so wrong before because I made a, a wrong assumption that about the U.S., and I'll come to that in a second. Um, but I think uh, what the Ukrainians are doing, they are adapting. They realize that they can't just drive through these minefields. And so... Uh, They are focusing on degrading Russian artillery and Russian logistics, which uh, is the right way to do this in the current circumstances. It's what's going to help them uh, get the get the pressure off of their engineers who are trying to clear lanes through these minefields, get the artillery off their back. That's number one. Number two. I think there are lots of successes, uh, local tactical successes that will either lead to eventually a breakthrough or breakthroughs uh, on several places, or they will keep the Russians guessing as to where is the attack actually, the main effort actually coming, which makes it difficult for them to move their forces around. And so I think um, I, I would anticipate that at some point the Ukrainians will decide okay, here's our main effort. This is where we're going to, we're going to exploit success. I think that they're still waiting to, to develop that. And so they still have a lot of force that's not actually in the fight. And then the third thing, um, the, the key here is making Crimea untenable for the Russians. Make them have to leave. And if you had an Atakum or Taurus or Storm Shadow or Scalp impacting inside Sevastopol two or three times a day, day after day, then the Black Sea Fleet would be gone. I mean, there, there's no way they could stay there. The Black Sea Fleet commander would have to depart and reposition and re, uh, his fleet around to Novorossiysk or somewhere else. They couldn't just sit there. Uh, Crimea is the size of Massachusetts. It is very small. There, there's no place to hide. Every cab driver in Kiev knows where all the critical sites are in um in Crimea, so targeting is not hard. It's having the asset to do to reach the target. So Sevastopol air base at Saki, the big gigantic logistics hub at Jankoi, hit those things every day with precision weapons. They have to leave. They they can't just stay there. And so I think um, what the Ukrainians are having to do uh, in the absence of these long range capabilities or having enough of them, they're they're having to do what soldiers did in the 18th century and the 19th century, which is move the siege lines in closer and closer until you can get your cannons in range to hit the, the walls of the fort. I mean, in effect, that's what they're having to do now so they can eventually get HIMARS and other weapon systems close enough to be able to consistently uh, disrupt or, or uh, degrade the ability of Russian forces to operate in Crimea and on and along the so-called land bridge, I think that's I think that's what they're up to. Um, the speed of this is, I think, depends on the United States. If the U.S. and then Germany would deliver these capabilities that we talked about, I think you would see things start to change quickly.
0: Will the Taurus unlock uh, the attackers?
1: Uh, you know, it's going to be embarrassing if France, Germany, and U.K. all Uh, step forward uh, before the United States does. Um, You know, I hear, um, and and by the way, I hope it does, but, you know, um, the British sending Challenger tank uh, did not automatically unlock the U.S. sending M1 tank. So, um, and it could be that all this is being orchestrated behind the scenes, I don't know. Uh, But the unwillingness of the United States to provide the uh, significant long-range precision strike capability, whether it's a or Gray Eagle drones or the uh, ground-launch small diameter bombs and obviously air power um, makes it, it it provides an excuse for Germany not to provide Taurus. I, I read the other day that German, the Bundeswehr has 600 Taurus cruise missiles. I don't, I don't know that that's a fact. Uh, that was open source, but if they've got even half of that I mean that's that's significant capability 500 kilometer
0: range yep um there was a rumor that only 300 might be operable and the likes but it's probably true mindful of your time and knowing that you wished and, and have to depart at the top of the hour uh, we have a colleague who's currently still close to the front lines andre with us andre you have a question
4: good evening gentlemen good evening mr ben nice to meet you and uh, I have just a small remark, uh, I heard talking about uh, how the Ukraine sells the tanks. Yeah, of course, it's no excuse for our corrupted politics, who play the dirty games uh, together with the Russian Russians, but uh, the small opinion just from the trenches, from the Kremlin forest, it really doesn't matter how much tanks do you have for the moment. Because just a few days ago, my guys, with a $300 FPV drone, destroyed T-90 tank. With the first drone, we stopped the tank. With the second one, we wait for uh, when the crew open the hatch, try to escape. We kill the crew, and the end. The third drone dropped the grenade into the hatch. That's it. So, $600 drones, one grenade, and T-90 tank, what's the cost, I believe, average, uh, roughly $4 billion, is destroyed. It doesn't matter. It's a really new generation of war. It's uh, tanks, it's... Uh, <laughs> because uh, they can save lives of our soldiers and they can destroy Russian tanks.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah. is uh, just a small point. And uh, thanks a lot for your opinion. It's, uh, it was really interesting to, to hear it.
1: Andrei, thank you. you. You have made my day. I mean, to hear that story. Uh, I would say $600 for a T-90 tank. That's a, that's a good return on investment. Uh, but it illustrates perfectly what Ukrainian soldiers are doing. And you guys um, have built a reputation that's known around the world uh, for being uh, so uh, creative, so innovative, so adaptive, and um I, I hope that we all are paying close attention to what y'all are doing <coughs> uh I'm, I'm very proud of you and, and uh, i wish the best to you and your uh your teammates out there in the forest
4: andre Jakub, cool. uh sorry guys uh, uh, I, uh, us. as usual, i have a very bad connection here in the front line uh mr ben could you please repeat your question <clears throat>
1: I was just saying congratulations and that
4: I was proud of you. <laughs> and, and, and... Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay. Be safe. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, um, Andre has been calling in from time to time uh, as we've been assisting in fundraising from the rear report for the um, teams of his unit and uh, including... Uh, drawn capacity for reconnaissance and the likes so, as well as thermal imagery
1: what what a great story i mean but that's i mean that's that is becoming he makes a great point i mean that they're figuring out how to do this and um I think that uh um, no matter what kind of tank you have, if the crew is not disciplined and well trained, and if the tank allows itself to be uh, caught out in the open the way they caught this guy they're, they're going to pay a giant price. And uh, well, that is a, a good return on investment. For all of you, thanks very much for being willing to put up with me for an hour. Uh, Axel, I always appreciate the opportunity to do this because the quality of
0: questions,
1: uh, I, this is one of my favorite things to do. I always learn from it because I do get challenged and uh, I like, I like the, the format. So thanks very much.
0: Thank you. Uh, from all of our audience, we're exceptionally proud that you've taken the time yet again for our report and our wonderful audience, and we shall hope to see you back soon. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much.